Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. This is the Pitchfork Review. I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director, and today we're going to talk about a musical excavation of sorts, the kind where a beloved artist draws a cult following, and after the artist's early death, those diehard fans begin a decades-long quest to find more and more of his music. And to everyone's surprise, they find it. I'm, of course, talking about Elliot Smith, the Oscar-nominated singer and songwriter known for his intimate almost confessional lyrics, who died in 2003. And to talk about this mystery, the trove of music recorded in his high school career and shortly thereafter, and how these things help reinforce or unmake the myth of Elliot Smith, I'm here with Features Editor Ryan Domble and Contributing Editor Jason Green. How are you both doing? Great. I'm doing good. Yeah. Just to sort of set the table uh, Ryan, can you just give us the, the brief elevator pitch of who Elliot Smith was and why he was so important to so many people? Yeah, so Elliot Smith was a singer-songwriter who made music that was so intimate and felt so personal and so hushed and so close to your ear that you almost felt embarrassed to listen to it, or you, you almost felt that this person was instantly your friend, was instantly new your most innermost feelings and was expressing them in a way that you could only hope to at at some point in your life. Right. And he became famous at a time when there's a lot of loud music and alt rock happening. And he came in with this really soft, quiet sound. And he was in bands in Portland in his early 20s. The one that is famous is Heat Miser. This is before he broke out as a solo star. Over the course of his career, he released five acclaimed solo albums, including many songs that are extremely sad, and that is kind of his calling card. One of them comes to mind as a song like Needle in the Hay, which is also made famous because it was used in a harrowing scene in Wes Anderson's The Royal Tenenbaums. Needle in the Hay You know, famously, he was also nominated for an Oscar for his song Miss Misery, which was in Goodwill Hunting. After that Oscar nomination, he'd made a couple more albums that were increasingly produced as well, kind of getting his Brian Wilson on a little bit uh, with albums like XO, Figure Eight. Jason, is there a song from one of those that like shows that kind of heightened production value? Yeah, I mean, I think that the song that also showed him as a major label artist, because by then he was also on DreamWorks Records, mm-hmm. which at the time was sort of like aptly for its name, this place where 
recording artists went to get these kingly advances to record whatever they wanted. And XO, the first song that almost anybody heard from it was Waltz Number 2. Now she's done and they're calling It was a full band set up with this rolling piano, and you know his voice was doubled up, and there was just a lot more going on for people who'd been following his music. It was a statement of intent. People really began to see that this guy was a multifaceted genius, master of many different skills. Yeah, much more than just a dude with a guitar. Much more than just oh, an yeah. acoustic singer-songwriter with a confessional bent. Right. Yes. Around this time, around figure eight, around the turn of the century... Ellie Smith's substance abuse issues became increasingly troublesome, and he passed in 2003 at age 34. And since the circumstances around his death are also like extremely sad, uh, it did feed into this idea that he he is the sad guy. I think one of the reasons he spoke so directly to people was that he seemed to be singing about extreme emotional states. You know, he clearly channeled those emotional states. And for many people, he became sort of a way for them to deal with their own deep forms of depression, of sadness, of anger, and whatever else sort of dark that they were trying to work through. I mean, it's a testament to his strength as a writer and performer. And when someone does that, I think they generally create a cult of people who want to find out more about it, right? You you can't help but crave more information. And, right. you know, it's also an, a sort of outgrowth of someone's life that was cut tragically short, you know, as Domble sort of alluded to. The circumstances of his death were both murky and very sad. He died by apparent suicide in 2003. Mm -hmm. And it creates this sort of energy around an artist, and you have to know. Well, it's like what the happened. ultimate unanswerable question, right? Right. And exactly. so, and so, everybody looks back. It's like, well, there must be something here, right? With a piece like Jason's story about his high school recordings and his teenage recordings, I think part of the subtext of this story is just to show that he is more than the sad guy. You know, Jason, start from the very beginning. How no. did the story come to you? I in 2013, interviewed between 18 and 20 of Elliot Smith's close friends, colleagues, associates, like to sort of trace the arc of his solo career up until his uh, untimely death. And in doing so, I was sent by one of his old friends, um, Tony Lash, who was the drummer in Heat Miser. Mm. He alluded in our conversation to these little high school recordings they made, and he sort of made an endearing off-the-cuff reference to these prog rock epics that they recorded, and I immediately was like, my eyebrow went up, and I thought, well, what's that about? That sounds funny. And then when we were putting the piece together, he sent an MP3 to me, and he said, here's an example of these recordings that we made. This was in Portland. You know, we were 16. It was called Catholic. Um, and I clicked play on this MP3, and I heard this, like, loud, tough, driving rock song, and Elliot Smith on vocals, sounding for all the world like um, Elvis Costello. You've never really <laughs> heard him uh -huh. until you've heard this because it's, it's, it's identifiably his voice, but he's going for a whole different thing. And the most interesting thing that I noticed was that it was a note-for-note -note prototype of 
this song from XO, Everybody Cares, Everybody Understands. Right. It was the same chord progression. It was the same arrangement in many ways. And it was the exact same melody, verse and chorus. Always You got a pretty vision in your head, a pencil full of poison lead, and a second smile. And that was a revelation to me because this song dated back to when he was a sophomore in high school. Now, at this time, nobody had really heard these songs. No, and at the time, he did not want those recordings to come out, and he had gone out of his way to suppress them because he was embarrassed. Sure. Fast forward 10 years, I got cold emailed in May of 2022 by a 20-year-old named Cameron McCrary. He had been spending the last two years of his life along with a couple other super dedicated Elliott Smith fans from various online forums tracking down each of what he informed me were six full-length tapes. And he sort of underlined it for me that these were actually full-length albums, right? And no one had, you know, really made the point of just how complete they were as projects, you know, considering they were made by 10th and 11th graders. Um, I mean, when you think about high school bands, you think about a tape recorder in the in the corner, re- mm-hmm. rehearsing a practice thing, mostly doing live shows, never really cutting albums or no, something like that. No, recording six, six records. It's an astonishing amount. And, and he Of was, originals. Of, of originals, yeah. right. A very good point. They were all original material. And Tony Lash wound up selling a couple of his copies. And by the time he contacted me, every single one of them was up on YouTube. But nobody knew what they were and who they were by. And they were just hiding in plain sight. I mean, Elliot Smith, at the time he recorded them, did not go by the name Elliot Smith. He was still Stephen Paul Smith. What were some of the names of these bands? It was him, a good friend named Garrick Duckler, who he met in a Russian class, I believe. Jason Hornick and Tony Lash and a few others. Uh, they variously decided to record under the name Stranger Than Fiction, They recorded under the name Harem Scarum and... A Murder of Crows. A Murder of Crows, Mm -hmm, yes. mm -hmm. And each of these tapes, as I listened to them, contained so many surprises of so many different kinds that I immediately realized that they changed basically the entire Elliot Smith story. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. When I listened to that first song in 2013 that Tony Lash had sent me and discovered that he'd rewritten one of these old high school tunes for his one of his most famous albums, you know, I wondered at the time, if he did that once, is there a chance that anything else we know of his could have roots in this music? Mm. And across the six albums, there are a number of songs yeah. 
One great example, and one of the ones that really sent me for a loop, was that on one of the later cassettes, so in 1987, he graduates from Lincoln High School and he starts to attend Hampshire College. He stays in touch with his friends, and when they're on breaks, they're still recording these albums together. And on one of those, there is a song called Condor Avenue, Mm -hmm. which Elliott Smith fans will instantly recognize as one of the most iconic tracks from Roman Candle. She took the old smoke out past Condor Avenue and she locked the car and slid past the two rhythmic quiet lights burning voice drive horns. And the arrangement of this old version of Roman Candle is virtually identical. The guitar part and it's in the same key. The words in many cases are virtually identical. So there'll be phrases like swinging like a bastard back and forth or uh, into rhythmic quietude is another phrase that you can listen to the 1988 version and hear uh, that he used in his own. She took the Oakdale Ridge long past Condor Avenue She locked the car and slid past Into rhythmic quietude Come let me get to the porch And these lyrics were not written initially by him. You know, the lyrics to these group recordings that they made as teenagers were largely supplied by Garrick Duckler, who was not as much of a musician as he admitted as his friends, but was someone with lots of ideas about songs and pages and pages of lyrics. Right. And he wrote those phrases in, you know, into rhythmic quietude, swinging like a bastard back and forth. I don't know what to do with your clothes or your letters. There's all these phrases that then Elliot Smith used. And that is another real head trip for people who spent their life listening to solo Elliot Smith recordings and interpreting them as something unfiltered directly from his mind and his heart. Because these were songs that were composites of not just his viewpoint, but of all the people he'd known along the way. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I think you, you mentioned in the piece where Duckler was like, Elliot doesn't even know where Condor Avenue is. Right. You know. Yeah. And there was this sort of sense, because also when you get into, and there's this unseemly thing that happens, and it happens with everyone, when there's an artist who's known for making art that expresses darkness, who had some darkness in their life that people know about, there's a constant urge from biographers, from fans, from everyone to draw out one-to-one parallels. Mm -hmm. You know, he split time between Dallas and Portland, and there are songs that sort of portray an overbearing patriarch figure that many people associated with his stepfather. And Condor Avenue is very much a song about an overbearing patriarch. And the, you know, or like a um, a violent altercation between a father and mother. Right. And there was a sense among fans, well, if this isn't biographical, it seems to allude indirectly to struggles in his life. And when you hear this old song, you're like, oh, well, that's complete nonsense, obviously. We made that connection entirely on our own. And these were words written by his friend that he liked. And every other biographical parallel that I may have made in my head is probably equally false. Right. And, or and- at least open to question. And so once I'd heard all these recordings, it became a question of, okay, how can I find these people? Their memories were so fresh of hanging out with him, of watching him attack music with such evident joy and determination. So between my interviews with Garrick Duckler, who is now a practicing psychoanalyst in um, Portland, I interviewed Jason Hornick, 
who um, is a professor of pathology at Harvard. I just also spoke with um, Glynis Fox, who is a graphic novelist. Her claim to uh, fame on these recordings is that she provided lyrics. And as I spoke to them, it just, it what emerged was like a more wholesome, more affectionate, dazed and confused style, like group of friends who just wandered around. Elliot, in all of their recollections, is hilarious, um, which comes up over and over again. You know, one of my favorite little details was how, as a group, they would have these weird little phrases that they would use to crack each other up, and they made no sense to anyone except them. And the point of them sort of was to repeat them over and over and over again until just saying it could reduce them all to hysterics. Yeah. Uh, I asked Jason Hornick, I was like, okay, so try one on me. And he said, ducky boy soup. And he said, all Elliot Smith had to do was say ducky boy soup. And then he tried to stick his hand through my stomach. And that was it. <laughs> that was the whole joke. And then all of them, not just him and Jason, would be in hysterics for minutes because they had developed this weird secret language that only they understood. I also learned in interviewing them that they played a high school dance, which when you listen to these recordings is hilarious to imagine. Not sure how you can dance to Yeah, this. a lot of it is like prog rock, right. essentially. Yeah. That's the thing. I guess we haven't touched on that, right? Because what I haven't talked about, besides the fact that there are songs by Elliot Smith that you might recognize, there are also <laughs> songs called Song to the Great Serpent and Instinctual Disjunction. I don't want what everybody wants. And these are like nine-minute songs that like someone's brain has been deeply infected by Rush and Yes mm -hmm. and all of this sort of prog rock stuff that really – you have to work it out of your system yes. at an early age. And this is the sound that you never thought you would hear of Elliot Smith working through a really intense Rush fixation with his friends. And these songs have multiple time signatures and key changes and just pages and pages of lyrics. Well, one of my favorite quotes in the whole story is, I think, Glennis Fox says, just describing their friend group, mm. she says, we were nerdy, but we didn't feel like nerds. <laughs> so that's another thing, too, where this is a bit of more counter-programming to this um, caricature of Elliot Smith, right? I mean, these are not miserable kids who were made to feel like they were loners and outcasts. These were kids who were accepted. I mean, another great quote is that Glynis said that she she dated Garrick Duckler. She and Garrick were um, in a relationship through most of high school, and they were put on the ballot for homecoming royalty. And she was like, well, whether that was ironic, I don't actually know. <laughs> <laughs> but it speaks to, they were, you know, they were happy. Yeah. Also, yeah, I mean, this was the 80s when every song, every rock song had a compulsory guitar solo, and <laughs> right. they were trying to learning song forms, yeah. right? Yeah, do you remember, like, any specific song as far as a solo, like, really popping off? So the one that comes to my mind, there's this punk funk thing going on in a college-era song, right? He's just gone away to Hampshire. And so this is like 88, 89. There's a song on one of them called Small Talk. And, you know, who boy, just the first 10 seconds alone. The phone is busy. Her legs are naked. <laughs> And it has this sort of Dave Navarro-y sort of stop-start groove uh -huh. that I associate deeply with, yeah, like a certain kind of guitar, flashy pyrotechnics. It's not of Eddie Van Halen solo per se, but there's all these wild sounds going off in the background. 
And it's strutting. I mean, to be blunt and indelicate, it's essentially what we used to call cock rock. Right. Mm-hmm. And it is totally Elliot Smith getting his cock rock on because the opening line is something about she's naked, you know, it's, and he's grunting. It's really, I mean, it gets back to why you understand at the time as a solo star, he was not eager to have people pouring over these recordings. But, right. Yeah. But um, it, it's so endearing. It's hard to feel anything but like affection for this sort of thing. Yeah, it it made me think of that being a through line as far as him presenting his talent. You know, doing a crazy guitar solo is kind of the most teenage obvious way Mm -hmm. you can show that you're good. You're good at this instrument, right? Totally. Mm -hmm. But then when you move into his kind of solo stuff, he's doing this really intricate picking style. Maybe harder to do, to pull off, yeah. Oh, yeah. but, you know, so much more understated. You know, yeah. he's just like, he wanted to he mm-hmm. wanted to highlight the lyrics in those songs. Yeah. And then even if you move on to his more produced stuff, that's when he was using the studio as his instrument. And he was a master of that. So you mm-hmm. could say he was he never stopped showing off. It was just different ways. He made it more presentable <laughs> across his career. I want to touch on a few more songs here because I think the, the relationship to songs that Elliot would record later in his life are fascinating. And the other one I wanted to mention is Fast Food. This cheap so Fast Food comes from their 1986 effort, Waiting for the Second Hand. And it is a song where the melody came from Jason Hornick, And he chose this setting that I have chosen to refer to as Ewok horn (laughs) because it's just the most ludicrously tinny sort of (laughs) piping sound Uh you've you've ever heard it. It's the sort of sound where when you hear it, you bust out laughing because it's it's ridiculous, right? Yeah. And then, yeah, and then Garrick Duckler wrote these words that are just, once you listen to these, you realize that all of these songs are real mouthfuls, but this is a song that rhymes like prophylactic. You know, it's got these three or four syllable words and... It's clearly showing off like this wide teenage vocabulary, you know. And then when he was recording Figure Eight, which was his follow-up to XO, it was his second major label record. And he's in Abbey Road Studios and he desperately, this is Elliot, Elliot desperately wants to get out of his DreamWorks contract. Mm -hmm. Track three on Figure Eight is a song called Junk Bond Trader. And it is a sort of viciously disdainful song. Yeah. Sort of about an artist who is just better sell it while you can is right. the kind of the hook and it's it's the exact same melody and it's really even arranged for that uh, from fast food so this is jason hornick's old melody from 1986 on this ridiculous pseudo horn setting and this song overflows with words yeah. and there's this line now i'm a policeman directing traffic keeping everything moving everything static now i'm a policeman directing traffic keeping Like a 
Now, the other reason people are obsessed with Elliot Smith is because his lyrics are absolutely amazing. Right. Right? I mean, marvels of economy, multi-layered uh, meaning and metaphor, they communicate so directly yet they seem to obscure something essential. They're just powerful. Mm-hmm. And that phrase in particular that I just quoted is also verbatim from Ducklers. Mm. And so he had reached back and, you know, it's not plagiarism, right? He's not stealing. What he's, and, and that was something else that Garrick Duckler was very careful to underline for me is that neither of them, they even had a sort of moment as adults where Elliot sort of said to him, listen, I don't really know how to credit you on this stuff. These little phrases of yours that I keep going back for, you know, and Garrick sort of assured him that they were not so precious to him that he needed credit. It was more mm. about, to him, they reflected back to him how important he had been to Elliot. And it was heartwarming to him, actually, to hear these phrases make their way into the world via Elliot Smith's immensely successful solo albums. It was a realization of their childhood dream, in a way. And in a sort of way, it's a telegram back to them. Like, look, guys, this is the song we wrote in Lincoln High, and here I am doing it. You know, And that was sort of the vibe. Yeah, and I think some something like the junk bond trader fast food comparison, it also invites a whole other round of speculation that we, that you do a little bit in the story as far as what does it mean that when he was having trouble with his label, when he was, mm-hmm. you know, having trouble with fame, problems with substance abuse, what does it mean that he's looking back to this time, mm-hmm. you know, like like a lot of teenage memories, it's like this was this free floating mm-hmm. idyllic time and i think there's another example of this with the song king's crossing which is on elliot smith's posthumous album from a basement on the hill you know it's one of my favorite elliot smith songs and it is this very dark and psychedelic track that especially coming out after his death you couldn't help but think he was in a bad way like this is you're hearing from him right before the end But that is not not completely the case. Like as you as you pointed out, it's based on this other song. Personally, that one was the most uh, surprising to me. It became this troubling document of both a human being in the end stages of their struggles and an artist seeking to evolve to some sort of next place. Right? It's both of those things. It's unrealized potential, unrealized vision, and then has to be presented to the world as that. And there's a line in King's Crossing that cuts right through you when you hear it. Elliot Smith sings, give me one good reason not to do it. And in concert, people had taken to shouting back at him, because I love you. Mm. So if any song has ever been presented to the public as essentially an audio equivalent of a suicide note, Mm. I would say it was King's Crossing. It also happens to be this psychedelic masterpiece mm-hmm. full of incredible lines and images and explosive arrangement. But mm-hmm. then when you listen to this 1988 record, The Greenhouse, which they recorded under the alias A Murder of Crows, you hear the song three. And once again, it is King's Crossing. It's King's Crossing. I mean, mm-hmm. it's the same melody, and it's, again, many of the same lines. And the arrangement even has some similarities. It is an uncanny listening experience for anyone like myself who had come to have this very 
profound and in some ways painful personal relationship with this particular Elliott Smith song to hear this version mm. with lyrics once more written by Garrett Duckler. The key line, you know, the give me one good reason not to do it, it's actually in this song too. It is slightly altered. It is give me one good reason why you do it. Right. And then in a sort of hilarious side note, if you look earlier on in the lyrics to Duckler's version, it seems for all the world that what Duckler is asking us is why do you fill out your W-4? <laughs> because there's a direct reference to paying taxes and filling out your W-4. You know, give me one good reason why you do it. <laughs> this is, you know, Duckler working through some youthful libertarianism or something. So, but right. Do you listen to these songs different now? I do. It doesn't change anything that is powerful about Eliot's music to know objectively just how many places he drew it from. You know, if anything, the more that I think a great artist is allowed to be rendered as a complex and sort of contradictory real human is to imbue that same sense into the music itself. You can hear more of who he must have been in the songs themselves, which remain amazing. And I think it's because artists who die early, like you said, Kurt Cobain, uh, Elliot Smith, I mean, Jeff Buckley is another one, too, where people mm. ascribe this, oh, he was just this seraphimic, <laughs> you know, beauty who just was obsessed with little, you know, filigrees of singing and guitar, and he just right. captured all the beauty and, and fragility of the world. Right. It's like, he was a goofball, you know? I love that so much, and that's my favorite thing about learning about Elliot Smith's life as a reporter and as a fan, is collecting those stories that give texture. You know, one of my favorite little moments was... Uh, one of the albums had uh, in the credits, you know, lyrics by Susan Pagani. And it was in a few minutes of getting on the phone with her that she revealed that, um, well, the reason that she was credited with writing lyrics for some of these songs is because she had written these as sort of poems or, uh, you know, short story ideas in letters that she wrote to Elliot when they were in a one-year relationship together. Mm. She met him when Stranger Than Fiction played at her going-away party when her family was moving away from Portland, over the next year, they sent each other all these letters. They spent hours on the phone together. I think one of my favorite songs that I heard across all six tapes mm. is called Reba. And I did not know that that was the pronunciation of Reba because it is spelled P-B-I-D-A, mm -hmm. which is Pabida. And um, I said the title of that song to Susan Pagani in our interview, and she corrected me. She said, oh, no, no, that's, that's Reba. <laughs> and I was like, well, not here. It's, it's spelled Pabita. <laughs> and she's like, actually, that's transliterated from Russian. Uh -huh. It's the Russian word for fish. I said, oh, I mean, of course. Reba, Reba, on the way to the so she, she, she said to me that, you know, this song was written by Elliot to her because... Uh -huh. She loved fish at this time. And so um, she sent him a little paper string of fish in an envelope, one of her letters, and he sat down with it and he wrote that song to her. Yeah, I really love all the stuff with Susan in the story. There's also a great part where she's talking about the first time they met and she's like, you know the moment when you talk to someone and just know that you're going to be friends? I had that, you know, with Elliot. And 
that really struck me because I feel like that's the way so many people feel about his music as well. Yeah. You know, you listen to one song and you're like, this is my favorite artist. Yeah. So before we go, um, I wanted to just ask you guys, what are your personal favorite Elliot Smith songs? I would say it was maybe just Roman Candle because that's the first moment that he sort of steps into this vision of himself as this particular kind of artist. You know, he was still essentially in Heat Miser, um, which was, his, you know, his college band and still friends with Tony Lash in his high school, you know, and he had sent recordings of this, you know, Jason Hornick was given a copy of Roman Candle. Mm-hmm. And to sort of hear that with the fresh knowledge of all this stuff that they'd done together before and who he just suddenly became, I mean, in some ways it makes it even more startling because it's just so complete. Yeah. And I was given a kind of new appreciation for just how in fully formed and genius it was from the get-go. What a strange boy she thinks He's so serious He doesn't say a word to me It's all between us Sleeps alone and eats alone In the morning they will take him Na-na-na-na-na-na Brian, what about you? Well, you know, going over the story, editing this story, like, did bring to mind a lot of just personal memories, and I feel like it's kind of hard to avoid with his music. One of them was seeing him for the first time in 2000 at Irving Plaza in Manhattan. And I remember this because that was prom night at my high school. (laughs) I had been rejected um, previously. And my kind of rebellion was like, fuck that. Like, I'm going to see Elliot Smith on prom night instead. Wow. And, you know, this is like the figure eight period. Like, it was a rocking show. It wasn't mm. It wasn't completely, you know, just him and the guitar. You know, it wasn't like I was just crying the entire concert or anything. <laughs> Not uh, the entire concert, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, it, he's just, that's, you know, he just has that. I feel mm. like you talk to anyone who's a fan and they're going to have some kind of formative moment listening to his music or seeing him or, yeah. you know. Oh, guys. Well, thank you so much for hanging out and talking about um, yeah. this man's work and how it's changed and how maybe it'll always stay the same. Um, really appreciate it. Ryan, Jason, uh, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks. The Pitchfork Review is a production of Condé Nast. You can read Jason's story about Elliot Smith at pitchfork.com. Catherine Fenelosa at Rococo Punch is our senior producer. Ryan Domble is our showrunner. Jessica Gramulia is our music supervisor. And I'm Jeremy Larson. Thanks for listening.